Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Andy Kassane. Andy is a multi-award winning poet and novelist who's won a whole swag of awards, including the Harry Jones Memorial Prize for Poetry, the inaugural Publishers Cup Cricket Poetry Award, John Shaw Nilsson Poetry Award, and shortlisting for, among others, uh, the Kenneth Slesser Prize for Poetry, New South Wales Premier's Prize for Literature, the Vision Australia's Audio Book of the Year, Gwen Harwood Poetry Prize, the Newcastle Poetry Prize, Tom Collins Poetry Prize, and the Somerset National Poetry Prize. I could probably go on, but I'll just stop there and say, Andy, welcome. Hi, Maggie. It's great to be here. Now, Andy, I know when I was reading the book, and uh, I always look at the back, that a lot of the poems in Radiance were actually published elsewhere. Some of them have shortlisted for prizes. Um, tell me how the book came together as a full collection. Oh, well, I think uh, poetry collections are kind of strange things anyway. I mean, in some ways, they don't come together as books very well um, because they're, they're just poems written over a series of years. Um, so I suppose what I try to do is just kind of organise them into sections where the poems are kind of uh, they, where the poem you the poem you read follows on from the from the previous one. So there's not a, like a huge jump in um, emphasis or content or tone. Um, but um, I, I think poetry books are kind of quite weird um, constructions, really. So what was the impetus for pulling a book together? Um, did, did your publisher get in touch with you and said, Andy, it's time? Oh, no, I think my publisher has uh, far too many people asking him to publish books, so I don't think he needs to go searching for them. Oh, no, I had, um, I, I had a grant from the Literature Board of the Australia Council to write a book of short stories and a book of poetry, and I'd done the, well, I basically finished both of them, but I had the poetry book done about the same time as the short story book was coming out. So I just really sat on it for about a year and a half um, so that um, I didn't have two books coming out so close together. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that that's sort of how it came together. I was sort of working on this um, project to write a book of poems, but you, you never really know. The book's never exactly how you think it's going to be when you start. Right. Yes, and I, I mean, I know from having published poetry books myself, quite often you end up in a, a bit of a tussle with the publisher as to, you know, what poem should be first, what poem should be last, how, you know, even the editing of the poems. Um, but when I got your book, um, the first thing I noticed is that it's actually dedicated to your publisher, um, David Musgrave. Um, so obviously you didn't have those problems. Oh, I've, no, I've never really had any problems working with Dave. I, um, he, he did, we did do an editing session on the poems and he sort of pushed me on a number of them, which I was kind of grateful about. And uh, so the, the published book is not exactly as they, uh, the poems are not exactly as they appeared in, um, in magazines or, or newspapers or whatever. Um, so I, I did sort of rewrite some of them at the last minute, um, which, which is good. It's always good to have another person's opinion on how the, how the poems are working and where the problems are. Mm, for sure. Yeah, so um, the four-part structure, did you have particular themes in mind for each section? Um, I think, uh, well, there were two sort of, they're almost sequences. There's a, a section of poems, a second section, where I have conversations with 
uh, literary characters, mo mo you know, mostly uh, dead poets like uh, John Keats and uh, Percy Shelley and Dylan Thomas and uh, uh, I think Virginia Woolf. So those poems kind of group together in a section and the book ends with a sort of uh, nine-part poem um, called Sea of Tranquility, uh, which is about sort of me living with um, a character called the Moon. Um, so those two sections sort of um, took care of themselves. And I think in a way the first section I, I was writing um, a number of poems about child labour. So uh, it's something I think that teaching... Um, Teaching Blake's poetry sort of got me interested in that. And so I started writing about child labour. And so the first section, in a way, is about sort of not exclusively, but largely about sort of childhood and adolescence and growing up. And the third section of the book, I suppose, is where I put the sort of political poems. Mm. Um, so that's yeah. sort of how I organised it. But it's probably not the only way of doing it. There's probably all sorts of ways of um, organising a poetry book if it's not... Um, following a, a narrative. And, and do you find, I mean, as, as a reader, um, when I'm reading a book, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's human nature to look for those, I, I guess those overriding themes and say, oh, now I'm in child labor poem section or, you know, now I'm in the poems about um, hanging out with dead poets. Um, but as a, I wonder if, if you were to change the structuring, you know, just a kind of philosophical question, do you think that the meaning in some way from proximity might change? Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. You sort of can, um, you know, pull the pages out of the book and throw them up in the air and rearrange them, um, a bit like a, a cut-up poem or something. So I think it is possible to do that. But in the end, um, because of the, the way books are organised, you have to um, you have to decide on an order. Um, and there's probably, you know, there's probably not one right order. But I, I'm fairly happy with the, the way the the sort of book ended up. Mm. And, and the epitaphs, of course, really, they really um, kind of cue the reader, I think, to what that section, the, over, the overall, I guess, uh, organising structure of that section. Yeah, well, I suppose I've always liked um, quotes from um, other poets. And um, oh, I think with the, uh, the there's a Galway Canal um, quote from a poem called Oatmeal, uh, where he has, um, breakfast with John Keats and so that was that poem in a way inspired uh, my interest in kind of writing about um, talking with um, dead writers and it was something I did in the last book out to lunch so that that epigraph was really easy to um, you know that that definitely needed to go there and I've been trying to use the James Wright um, epigraph um, for like I suppose about 15 years I you know I want to be, I want to be lifted up by some great white bird unknown to the police. So it's from the, the Minneapolis poem, and it's a very, um, it's a very kind of bleak poem, but it ends in such a positive way. And it, it's a very critical poem about homeless men in America. Um, so I, it, that just seemed to belong with the political poems. And the start of the book was really easy because I wanted to start with a poem called Flight. And that poem was really inspired by um, Seamus Heaney's poem, Postscript. And so, yeah, the epigraphs sort of came together quite easily. I wasn't sure whether to go with, you know, um, I could have for the moon poems used an epigraph like the moon hits your eye like a like a, a pie. That's a moray. I was, I was thinking about that, but in the end I just thought, oh, no, I'm going to go with um, that 
reference to the scene in Midsummer Night's Dream where the theatricals are, you know, put on the play and someone has to play the moon because it just seemed to fit the sequence that follows it. It's a bit more moving too than, <laughs> than uh, that's Amore. Yeah. In, in, in any case, um, one of the themes that I found a lot, um, and particularly in the first section, and um, again, that, that could be because there's a lot of this in poetry in general, but was this notion of the epiphany of like discovering in a very ordinary domestic moment, you know, the, I guess transcendence. And uh, one poem that really does that for me is Flight. So I'd love it if you could read that one. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's interesting you talk about epiphanies because I think it's... Um, I didn't consciously set out to write poems with epiphanies in them, I think. But I suppose because um, I'm you know, very interested in the short story and one of the things that I think the contemporary short story is, uh, is, is dominated by is the epiphany. So it, it probably comes sort of... Um, from my reading in a way that's that's not conscious that that um that i do that anyway I'll, I'll read the poem this is called flight sometime in june or july throw on a cable stitched gray jumper or even a thick coat for warmth take the afternoon off and head out past Cornell to cape salander there on the white sandstone cliffs above the vast flood Look for humpbacks heading north, swimming near the shore to dodge the ocean current sliding south. Witness, if you're lucky, a whale breaching. The corrugated whiteness of its wobbly ascension, the dark certainty and blazing glitter of its fall. The cold breeze ruffles the diamond quilt until it's as messy as an unmade bed. It tongue tugs at waving tendrils of spear grass and at the tips of your ears. It makes your eyes water as if some old sadness has unexpectedly taken hold. You can find no sign of a sea eagle hovering. You cannot name the endangered species growing in this headland heath. But you can close your eyes. You decide to do this simple thing electing to completely miss the whale if it rises again, aware now of this immense unknown life going on around you, within you, as the buffeting, lunging wind picks you up and gives you wings. Mm. Yes, at that moment, that transformation where you no longer even need to see the whale to feel it, I guess that's what I mean when I talk about epiphany. Yeah, I suppose it's an interesting... I mean, I, when I started writing the poem, I, I didn't know that was where I was going. I, I, I was just... Well, Heaney's poem is uh, about mm. going to um, to a lake in Clare and he, he sort of sits in the car and it, 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 it's sort of watching the swans and the wind and whatever. It, it blows his heart open. So I think I was just sort of working off that poem. But... Uh, I, I didn't actually, I, I've been uh, watching out to Cape Salander, but it was a long time before I wrote the poem. So I really just wrote it from memory. I had no mm. idea when I started that I was going to sort of close my eyes and not look for the whale. But yeah. Yeah, I think whale watching is very much like that. You feel like 
you know, you if you do something wrong, you will miss the whale because it, you just have to be very lucky to see them in a way. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and I, I don't know, is there a touch of metapoetics in this idea of actually closing the eye and just turning it into something else? Um, how do you, what do you mean? How do, How is it metapoetics? Um, in terms of, I guess, the kind of thing that a poem does, that we're no longer looking at whales. We're now looking at a poem about a whale that we've kind of moved to a different a different um category of experience of this subjective thing that you're writing about yeah i think that's right i mean i i, I in some ways when you're writing you're not conscious of these things so i think some mm. um you just do things in poems that that kind of work that are not deliberate or are not always sort of um at the forefront of your mind. Maybe it's the unconscious mind that, that does it. I'm, I'm not really sure. But uh, I'm, it, it, I, I want to write the poems in some ways and leave the reader to, to do the work too. Yeah, does that make- yeah, which is absolutely, it's part of the fun of it. And, and I guess too, and I'm conscious of this, not always needing to have a meaning, that it doesn't have to necessarily be translated, but you know, there's a whole range of things that happen through that poem that are rhythmic and and moving, that that aren't specifically, you know, this means that. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Although, I mean, I am big on sort of trying to work out what you're trying to do in poetry. I, I think there's a there's a section in um, Sea of Tranquility where I say something like, you, you know, you have to ask what work this poem is doing, um, what what use is it to anyone and um that's certainly one thing i do, i do believe strongly that um you know poems are about communicating um and that's a very big word communicating i suppose it has a whole range of options and um it it can involve you know narrative it can involve laughter it can involve trying to move people um it can involve um political protest but but certainly most is about um communication or i hope it is anyway yeah. So another poem that does that quite well, I think, is certainly very concrete in a sense, um, is The Catch, which, of course, is, is all about that moment in cricket. But it does actually also have its own epiphany. Um, can I ask you to read that one? Yeah, sure. The Catch. Standing under a rainmaker that is falling towards your waiting hands, it's surprising how much crosses your mind. How you'd like to pash with Kathy McBride behind the grandstand after the game. How the coach said mental toughness was the key to success. How catchers win matches and Doug Walters served in Vietnam because he loved his country. How if your marks don't improve, you won't be allowed to play cricket again for the rest of summer. How the kookaburra hangs in the air like the baggy green you hope to wear. And then spinning closer, looks like all the mistakes you'll ever make in life and slips through your cupped fingers in slow motion before rolling to rest right there at your feet on the sunburnt grass. So that's the catch. And it is it is the catch in many different ways, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit of a catch twenty two too. 
Um, well, not taking the catch. Well, that actually happened to me. I think we were playing in the semi-final, and uh, I'd taken all these spectacular catches during the year, and then uh, the, it, well, what's supposed to be a very easy catch, where the ball just goes straight up in the air and comes down, um, was the one I dropped. And I think the guy went on to make a hundred, and we lost the match. So <laughs> that, that's cricket. That's cricket indeed, and uh, and that one of course won the inaugural Publishers Come Cricket Poetry Award. So you are now officially a cricket poet. Yeah, well, it's interesting actually because I've written one other po- my my first book of poems, which oh, I suppose really came out twenty years ago now, um, Facing the Moon. The title poem of that is a cricket poem. It's about sort of um, you know kissing a girl on a schoolyard cricket pitch. Um, and so it's it's interesting that well they're the only two poems I've written about cricket. I, I, I'm not um, I can't see a career in it actually. But, uh, I'm I'm quite happy with both of those poems and they're both they're both sonnets too really. So mm. yes, I noticed that, and uh, I, I suppose um, it, it's maybe not one that uh, the Cricket Association will use for their ads like Tom Keneally's on <laughs> football. I don't know. It's quite a nationalistic poem in a way. I mean, I'm not sure what Doug Walter's attitude to fighting Vietnam was, but um, I just somehow it, it worked its way into its poem because I think it's, it's sort of one of the things that you know we were told, you know, growing up about the Vietnam War. So, um, but I you, you might have, I, you might have to write another one where the ball gets caught. That's true. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to. Well, it's a poem about failure in a way. So. Um, which is unfortunately one of the things that happens when you play sport and you're not always successful. Yes, absolutely. And and also, I think it's part of the beauty of it to, to learn to deal with that as well yeah. as a parent. Anyway, um, the section that, that gave me a great deal of pleasure, perhaps because because of the way it's a consolation for loss for the reader, I think, um, of course, was was uh, section two, which you spoke about a little bit earlier as well. Um, this idea of hanging out with uh, with dead poets and, and writers, and um, some of whom are amongst my favourites. So um, there's a lot of beauty in that section. I mean, it's totally humorous, um, but it's also really rich with pathos. The idea of saving Virginia Woolf, for example. Um, so could I get you? Um, I was tempted to ask you to read the Virginia Woolf one. I've just mentioned it, but can I get you to read Dylan Thomas in Controvertible? Yes, sure. Dylan Thomas, Incontrovertible. After a can of beer and a cigarette for breakfast, Dylan Thomas leaves the house, his jacket flung over his left shoulder. Only six days until the first performance of Undermilk Wood, which is a long way from being finished, though Dylan hopes that the play will write itself. And anyway... An ash-blonde college girl sits behind the wheel of a yellow convertible, waiting to take him for a spin. A poet should experience the lush comfort of expensive leather, the roar of the engine, the wind rushing through his soft curls and the scent of her perfume, drifting over the gear stick and reminding him of a shaded lane in an apple orchard. The sky today is a lovely Californian blue, a shade that mirrors her sparkling eyes, hidden an irritating fact behind dark sunglasses. Where do you want to go, she asks Dylan, but he shrugs his shoulders as if to say, just drive. 
The destination is never as important as it seems. Twenty minutes later, out in the country, they stop at a building perched on a hill above a golden wheat field. A landmark for miles around, a giant neon beer glass salutes all who pass with an evangelical light. Dylan is out of the car before it stops. One quick drink, he says, without looking back or waiting for the girl whose name he can't quite remember. Though he has heard she will inherit a few carefree millions when she turns 21 and might then be partial to marrying a poet, especially a famous one. Dylan is already married. A slight but not insurmountable hitch he'd prefer not to think about while he drinks his beer. American girls have perfected the charm of casually flicking their hair as they cultivate geranium red cheeks in the stale barroom air. Dylan complains about today's hangover while diligently preparing for tomorrow's. But even when he whinges, you can hear waves breaking on a jagged rock shelf and a gannet's deathly cry as it dives down to the sea. So just talk to me a little bit about that one. Just, uh, sorry, what was the question? I just said talk to me about it. <laughs> talk to me a little bit about that poem. Well, I suppose the way I wrote all of these poems was to do a little bit of research into the writer, but um, I, I think sometimes research can take over things, and uh, really I just kind of made it up. I mean, I know he he, he was... Um, Dylan Thomas was a bit of a, a womaniser. He was in America, and he did really write um, under milk right at the last minute. So they were, they were virtually... Um, going on stage for a live performance of it and he was still kind of writing bits of it. So I, I sort of had those facts, but I just imagined really um, him going for a drive. I think in some ways that poem, one of the things that if you've ever heard um, a recording of him, he's got this sort of amazing voice. So it was the idea of his voice, I think, that becomes the ending of the poem that... Um, mm. that I, I, I think I maybe I had that before I started. Uh, I think the ending was initially a lot longer, um, and in the end I just cut out. And David suggested I cut out a number of lines because um, I, I have a tendency to sort of say the same thing um, more than once. And in, in the end, I'm re really happy with the ending because it sort of has a bit of a punch. I think it does. Yes, and I, I think too because the poem itself has a an almost kind of triviality to it you know th th things happen in a very superficial kind of way he's thinking about leaving his wife and you know a little womanizing he's having you know yet another drink and it, it the whole thing is kind of a you know about his i guess about the shallow nature of the life he's living at the moment and yet you know there's so much happening that it, not just his voice when he reads although it is beautiful sonorous voice but the voice of his poems that are left behind that life however it was. Yeah, well, I think um, there's not, you know, uh, I mean, I think there's a poem about Percy Shelley, and, um, I mean, he was perhaps even more of a womanizer than um, than Dylan Thomas. Um, and I think, you know, reading about his life, I, I thought that really he didn't treat the, the women in his life very well. But um, he still wrote sort of amazing poetry. So I, mean, I, I think with those... Um, 
I just like the playfulness of that section in the sense that you can kind of, um, you know, you, you can talk to dead writers and you can sort of go wherever you want with it. Um, and I think that's what I enjoyed about writing them. I sort of never knew where I was going to go until I'd actually written the poem. Did, did you write them all together? Was this part of a kind of series you were working on? Um, well, I started writing them um, in Out to Lunch. So that's got... Um, Poems like Skipping Lectures with Raskolnikov and um, Hanging Out with Atticus Finch and um, Sipping Chardonnay with the Fallen Women. So I, I have Chardonnay with uh, uh, Emma Bovary and Tess of the D'Urbervilles and Anna Karenina. So I I think I just... One of the things um, someone said to me is that, you know, the the last book often carries the next one. I mean, in some ways, it would have been good to put them all together in in the one book, but just uh, the number of years that I wrote them over, it, it just I thought I was done with that idea, and then I just kept writing them. So, um, yeah, I, I've forgotten what your question was, but I hope that's on the track. Uh, yeah, um, just whether you wrote them together, and yes, I think you've answered it quite well. Um, yes, are you tempted to write more about? You know, there are other writers that you'd like to kind of have oatmeal with. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I've also written about it in fiction, so um, or written about other artists. I mean, there's this story in uh, my book of short stories, The Swarm, uh, where Mark Chagall um, kind of turns up in contemporary um, St. Peter's in Sydney and um, is renting a flat. So, I, I mean, I am interested in the idea. I, I'm not really sure whether I will, will do it again or not. All right. Um, I, I'd like you to maybe read one more. I think we can probably squeeze it in. Um, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just cover at least a poem from Sea of Tranquility. Um, this moon. <laughs> the poem I'm thinking of having you read is Caught Inside. And then I'd love to just have a quick chat with you about the moon as character. Yeah, sure. Caught Inside. The moon sails out the door on her way to comfort an old friend living through another miscarriage. The far side is full of craters, but contains relatively few seas. I head to the beach with a mate who is just off antidepressants. His partner moved everything out while he was in Wellington watching rugby. No note, no phone call, no explanation. I marvel as he slides down the face of the biggest wave, arms stretched out like Astro Boy, picked up and carried to a place where he can begin to imagine benevolent light. The cruel sea dumps you in the sand. It holds you down in another world while the soup churns and spins above you as if it were a carnival ride stuck on some endless orbit. What relief to rise to the surface again, to breathe, to float on your back in a glassy plain and feel the gentle tug of the tide, the cool, invigorating water. So I asked you to read this one. I chose this one because although the moon is is present in all these poems, um, actually and symbolically, um, and of course is symbolic anyway, uh, a couple of levels of symbolism, um, but also because in this particular poem, the moon is absent. 
um, through the, the point of the work. Um, she's perhaps the benevolent light as well, um, but she's gone. Yeah, I, I suppose that actually hadn't occurred to me. I mean, I think what I was trying to do in that sequence, or, or, or perhaps one of the things that might contextualise it is, uh, there's a there's a poem, a sequence of Dorothy Porter's called The Night Parrot, uh, where... Um, she does much the same thing. It's where I got the idea from. The night, the night, there's a courtship of the night parrot and the trial separation. And it, it's like, it, it almost chronicles the relationship with the night parrot. Um, and so I was thinking really about just writing about my relationship and how to do it. And I suppose instead of, say, using my partner's name, I thought I'll just use the name of the moon um, as a way of... Um, Introducing a sort of extended metaphor into the poem, um, and it, it was just that it just gave me another dimension to work with, I suppose, and makes the poems um, well. I hope it makes them a, a sort of a little bit strange, so that they're about uh, everyday life, but also they're um, that they have this sort of um, this idea of the moon shining going through the poems. I think again, I probably haven't answered your question, but uh, no, I think you have. There's a mag- there's a magic to them. Oh, thank you. I mean, in some ways, uh, it's interesting. I think as a writer, you 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 write the poems and then you sort of leave them. And in some ways, it surprises me what people see in them. Often, people see things in poems that that you weren't really conscious that that you were doing. I suppose. Um, and it, it seems like you. I mean, it hadn't occurred to me the absence of the moon in that poem. But yeah, I think you're right. Yes, and, and and I suppose there is a moon too. I mean, there, there's there is the moon as partner, but it's impossible not to see the link um, because of just maybe because of the name and because of all the connections you make through the palms. In this one, for example, the far side is full of craters, but contains relatively few seas. This idea of the you know the actual moon um, up there, our moon, <laughs> as opposed to the moon partner. Yeah, and that play between those two entities. Yeah, and I suppose it's a play between, um, you know, there's the 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 subtext of the poem is that you know I'm talking about my relationship while um, some you know a friend of mine his relationship is ending, and so it's something I suppose that you just deal with in contemporary life that, uh, um, you know, if you can keep a relationship going, you're very lucky, um, and that. You know, people have to deal with this um, tragedy and, and find a way of getting through it. But I, I think uh, that, that was based on an actual experience, and there's something kind of really purging about um, going swimming. Um, I, I know, uh, I think when I finished my first novel, or when I handed it in for the Masters, I, the, the first thing I did was just go down to the beach and surf, and it was just that amazing kind of um, feeling of relief. And um, that finally I got this beast off my back sort of thing. And I, I suppose that idea of relief is there in that poem too. Mm. Yes, and that the, the whole notion of being in the water and coming to the surface and, and all of that. Yes, for sure. So um, we, we don't have a lot of time left, but um, tell me, Sandy, what you're working on now or what you're excited about or what you're planning to work on. What's what's on the horizon for you from a writing point of view? Um well, it's interesting. I'm I'm working on a. Um, I've been writing short stories, so I'm I'm working hopefully on a, a book of short stories about uh, three women who were th- friends, 
Um, but I've probably only, um, I'm sort of like the third or fourth story into the book. So I'm really uh, not sure if it will um, if it'll work or not, but certainly I hope it will. Um, but actually lately I've really just been writing poetry um, instead of writing short stories. So you can plan to do one thing and find yourself doing another. Um, I've written another poem uh, uh, sort of on the child labour. Well, it's, it's actually about bullying at school. So uh, I find it things that I write about, you know, you think they're done with and you come back and you do something else with it. Um, so certainly I'm, I'm excited about the short stories. I'm going to the International Conference on the Short Story in Vienna in a couple of weeks and there's like 80, um, 80 writers and 80 academics going. So I'm, I'm, I'm fairly excited about that um, and looking forward to just being, um, being fertilised by what's happening in the short story around the world. Um, mm. And do you think there's a resurgence? Um, I think the short story's always been strong. Um, I, th I think uh, so. Sometimes the resurgence is sort of something that I think the media talks about. It, yeah. It's like a key to an article. But I think there's actually a heck of a lot of people um, writing short stories in Australia. Um, that's just such a beautiful form. And I think one of the things for me about it that I really like is that um, you can sort of get in and out. I mean, you might you mm. might work on it for a month or two, but it's not like I have to commit three years of my my life to kind of writing this novel. Um, so I, I I just like that that there's uh, it's a, just a shorter form to work with, but you can do so much. Yes, and I guess like poetry, you can actually publish while you're working, so you don't have this long wasteland of you know no confirmation or um, recognition. Yeah, that's right. You get the little. Um, uh, along the way, you get you can have some success, I suppose, so you can still feel good about yourself. Yeah, that's right. Look, that, that's all we have time for today. But Andy, thank you so much for joining me. And listeners, don't forget to subscribe to our iTunes channel, The Compulsive Reader Talks, for more great interviews. We'll see you again next month. Bye. Thanks, Maggie. Bye bye. Thanks.